I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. A lot of people begin a conversation with me by saying, I need to ask you a question. And I never know quite what to expect. Sometimes those questions are incidental. Like, who did Cain marry? Or why did God create mosquitoes? <laughs> or is that your real, real hair? <laughs> Sometimes those questions are monumental. And there's none more monumental than the question asked in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. What shall we do? It's the same question Paul asked of Jesus on the Damascus Road in Acts 22.10. What shall I do? It's the same question the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas in Acts 16. What shall I do to be saved? That is the question of all questions. As somebody said to me this week, if you're wrong on the answer to that question, you'll have all eternity to regret it. But you know, there's something almost as important as the answer to that question, and that's the motivation for asking it. Because some people ask that question without really sensing a need for the answer. If you've ever read Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, Alice asked the Cheshire Cat, would you tell me please which way I ought to go from here? And the cat said, well that depends on where you want to get to. And Alice said, I don't much care where. And the cat said, then it doesn't matter which way you go. You see, if you don't really care, then it doesn't matter whether you're asking the right question. When Paul came to Athens in Acts chapter 17, we're told about the people there that they spent their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. And so they said to Paul, please tell us this new message that you're proclaiming. Great question. And so Paul told them, and they sneered at him. They mocked him. Why? Because they asked a question that they saw no need for. They asked a question simply out of curiosity. But that's not what's going on in Acts chapter 2. Because these people are not just asking this question out of a curious mind. They're asking the question out of a pierced heart. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter's sermon, which began back in verse 14, had been effective. It did what a sermon ought to do. It stabbed people. It pierced people. It hurt people. And when the Gospel is faithfully preached, that's the impact it will have. In Acts chapter 5, Peter is preaching again. Verse 33 says, But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. In chapter 7, Stephen is preaching. Verse 54 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. That's what the Word of God does. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, we're told the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. 
Now the word pierced in Acts 2.37 is a unique word. This is the only time it appears in the New Testament. It means to deal a deadly blow. It's the idea of a sudden, unexpected, fatal wound. Peter's message not only convinced their minds, it convicted their hearts. And it didn't just prick their consciences, their consciences were smitten in such a way that they couldn't even fight back. As the writer of Hebrews says, they were laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. When the Word of God pierces us, it fillets us. It lays us wide open before God. Now what was it about Peter's sermon that pierced their hearts? Well, if you look over Peter's sermon, he simply lays out the Gospel. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus is exalted. And he gives his conclusion in verse 36. He says, God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, there are three ways in which that pierced the people on the day of Pentecost. Number one, they were pierced with grief. Because Peter gave an irrefutable argument that Jesus is the Messiah. That meant that the one that they had longed for for centuries, the one who was the fulfillment of all the national and personal promises of God, the one who was their only hope, had come. And they had missed Him. And so they were pierced with grief. Secondly, they were pierced with guilt. Because Peter doesn't just say you missed Him. He says you killed Him. You nailed Him to a cross. Peter doesn't soft sell their sin. He puts it right in front of their face. And there's not a sin that I can imagine that is more abhorrent than crucifying your Messiah. And then thirdly, they were pierced with fear. Because Peter says, this same Jesus is Lord. I can't think of anything more fearful than killing the Lord. And Peter says, He's risen and He's exalted. He's sitting at the right hand of God. And what's He waiting for? Look at verse 35. Until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. What worse enemy would Jesus have at this point in time than those who crucified Him? And so they were pierced with grief, guilt, and fear. And when they say, what shall we do? It's not from a curious mind. It's from a pierced heart. And that ought to be happening today whenever the Gospel is preached. And I think the reason it's not happening today is that many preachers today are watering down the message. People are not pierced with grief because rather than saying that Jesus is the Messiah, rather than saying without Him you're lost, rather than saying He's the only hope, He is presented today by many contemporary preachers as sort of a condiment to life. He'll make you happy. He'll fulfill you. He'll add pizzazz to your life. It's like when you go to Burger King at the drive-thru and you go up there and you order. I always order the numbers because 
the people can't hear me anyway. And they come back and they say, do you want to supersize that? Or I think, do, do you want to go large? That means do you want a large fry? And do you want a large Coke for only 39 cents more? In other words, you're already going to be satisfied. Don't you want to be stuffed? A lot of preachers today preach Jesus that way. You're already satisfied. Don't you want to add Jesus to your life and get just a little bit extra? But you see, that's not the Gospel. The Gospel is that Jesus is the life. And without Jesus, there is no life. And if you have missed Him, you have missed everything. And if you have missed Him, you need to be pierced with grief because you have missed God's purpose for your life. And today, people are also not pierced with guilt because rather than saying, you're a sinner, rather than saying, your sins nailed Jesus to the cross, there are many preachers today who aren't even mentioning the word sin. And instead, they go about to try to build up your self-esteem. Try to improve your self-image. They say, I'm okay, you're okay. But the truth is, you're not okay. And you'll never be okay until you're pierced with the guilt of your sin. Because until you are convicted of your sin, you will never see your need for a Savior. And then thirdly today, people are not being pierced with fear. Because rather than saying Jesus is Lord, rather than saying He's sitting at the right hand of God, rather than saying He's coming in judgment, the message today is He wants to be your friend. He wants to be your pal. He wants to tag along with you in your life. But you see, until you know Jesus as Lord, you will never know Him as friend. Until you fear Him as the Lord of the universe, you will never know that fellowship that we enjoy as friend. Peter preached the truth of God. And when these people heard it, they were pierced with grief, guilt, and fear. And so they are asking the right question from the right motive. What shall we do? Now notice Peter's answer to that question, verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter's answer is twofold. Repent and be baptized. Both involve change. Repent means a change of direction. Baptism symbolizes a change of association. The first thing that Peter says is repent. And that's always the first word in the Christian life. When John the Baptist came on the scene in Matthew chapter 3, his message was repent. When Jesus gave His first sermon in Matthew 4, His first word was repent. When Peter gives this first of the Christian sermons, his conclusion is repent. 
in the final book in the Bible, the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, the recurring message is repent. Now what does it mean to repent? Well, the word means to turn around, to change direction, to do a spiritual 180. And oftentimes when we talk about repentance, people simply think about an emotional thing. They think about feeling sorry and crying. And though those things go along with repentance, you can actually do those things and not repent. Matthew 27, 3 says that Judas felt remorse. Judas felt sorry, but he didn't repent. Now, I don't want to downplay emotions because emotions are an important part of repentance. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 7.10, it talks about the sorrow according to the will of God that produces repentance. There is a godly sorrow that produces genuine repentance. And so I cannot imagine genuine repentance without a sorrow that accompanies that. In fact, back in Zechariah 12.10, where we have the future prediction of the repentance of Israel, these are the words used. They will look on Me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over Him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Repentance involves the emotions, but it's more than that. It also involves the intellect. It is a matter of changing the mind. Prior to this, you said, I'm all right. The Scripture says you need to repent and realize that you're not all right. Prior to this, you looked at the Lord Jesus and you said He was a great teacher, wonderful prophet, fine example. Or these Israelites on the streets of Jerusalem said He was a carpenter's son in Nazareth. He was a fraud. He was an imposter. Peter says you need to repent. You need to turn around and turn away from those lies and believe that Jesus is Lord and Christ. And then there's a third area that repentance affects, and that is the will. It's volitional. There is a moral turning as well. I have to turn away from sin. I have to turn away from the world. I have to turn away from living for myself. And so, repentance is emotional, it's intellectual, and it's moral. It involves the total person. And many people have said that repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. And that coin is conversion. Repentance is turning away from my sin. Repentance is turning away from the lies that I have believed. And faith is embracing Jesus Christ. And you see, you can't have one without the other. When you have genuine repentance, you turn away from your own lifestyle, your own sin, your own lies, and you embrace Him by faith. Paul described his message in Acts 26.20 this way. He said, they should repent and turn to God. That's it. They should repent and what? Turn to God. That's faith. To the, Philipp- to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul says, you turn to God, that's faith, from idols, that's repentance. 
And that's always the way it will be. There will be genuine repentance, a turning from those things I've been holding on to, and there will be genuine faith embracing Christ. You say, well, where is faith in Acts chapter 2? I don't see it here. Well, we see it when we come down to verse 44. Because there he says, and all those who believed were in one place. Peter says repent. They repented, turned from what they were holding on to, and they laid hold of Christ by faith. Now let me add a footnote here, because there are many well-meaning Christian teachers today who say that we shouldn't preach repentance. That repentance is not necessary for salvation. Personally, I have a difficult time figuring out how they defend that position. Because in Luke chapter 13 and verse 3, Jesus said to the crowds, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, I don't know how you interpret that, but that doesn't sound optional to me. If you don't repent, you will perish. And when Jesus gave the Great Commission, here's the words we read in Luke 24, 47, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. What was the Great Commission? Proclaim repentance. When Paul stood on Mars Hill in Acts 17, here's what he said, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. And when the crowds on the day of Pentecost asked Peter, what should we do? Peter's first word was, repent. And then the second thing he says, which also involves change, is baptism. Verse 38, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, baptism was not unfamiliar to Peter's audience. The Jews baptized proselytes. When a Gentile wanted to become part of the Jewish religion, they washed him with water, which was really a picture that he was making a break from his past and he was entering into a new life. They also understood baptism because of the baptism of John the Baptist. John the Baptist preached a baptism of repentance. And when someone went to the Jordan River and was baptized by John, they were saying, we are separating ourselves from apostate Judaism and we are identifying ourselves with John as one who is waiting for the coming Messiah. And so when Peter says in Acts chapter 2, be baptized, they knew exactly what that meant. That meant to turn away from the old repentance and lay hold of the new. Now, in their case, what was the old? Well, the old was their religion, their apostate Judaism. In fact, in verse 40, he calls it this perverse generation. That's a Greek word from which we get scoliosis, twisted. He says it's a twisted generation, so twisted that they actually crucified their Messiah. That's the old. What's the new? Well, he says you're to be baptized in the name of of Jesus Christ. This same Jesus that you crucified, you are now to be baptized in His name, declaring Him to be Messiah. Now I think today we have a difficult time comprehending that. Because when someone is baptized, typically they're baptized 
in a building like this, and what do we do? We applaud. But I guarantee you that in Jerusalem on that day, people were not applauding. And you see that evidence in the life of a Jewish person today. When they make a profession of faith in Christ, when they start reading the New Testament, when they start attending Christian services, it's frowned upon. But when they reach that point where they're actually baptized, that is the final thing that cuts them off from the Jewish community. And so Peter is saying, I want you to repent, but we're not going to have any secret disciples. We're going to make it public by baptism. You're going to say publicly, I am separating myself from my past and my old life and my old beliefs and I am identifying myself with Jesus as the Messiah. And so Peter doesn't make this invitation easy. Repent. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your religion. Turn away from what you once believed about Jesus of Nazareth and identify with Jesus as the Messiah. And then publicly make that statement by baptism. Now, the next phrase in verse 38 has been the center of many a dispute. It says, let each of, him be, let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, at first glance, this verse seems to be teaching salvation by baptism. And many people insist that that's exactly what it means. Well, let me give you several reasons why that interpretation is impossible. Number one, because the rest of Scripture clearly teaches that salvation is by faith alone. And we could go through tons of Scripture to illustrate this. John chapter 1 and verse 12 says, but as many as received Him, to, to them He gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in His name. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. How do you get eternal life? How do you get salvation? It's by believing in Jesus. In fact, in Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer says to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? Do you remember the answer? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. You see, I cannot build a doctrine on a verse or two that contradict the overwhelming testimony of Scripture. That's like going to Luke chapter 18, where you remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, and come follow me. That'd be like going to that verse and concluding you have to give away everything you have to be saved. Is that true? No. How do we know that? From the context of the rest of Scripture. Then why did Jesus say that to that man? Because He knew that that man's God was His money. And Jesus was giving him the opportunity to show the genuineness of his repentance by turning away from that. The same is true here in Acts chapter 2. 
These Israelites were linked strongly to Judaism, and so he says to them, I want you to repent, but I also want you to do something very public. I want you to make a statement by baptism that you're turning away from the past, that you're separating yourself from that apostate Judaism, and you're coming to Christ. Second reason. The Bible records that some who were baptized were not saved. Acts chapter 8 tells us about a guy by the name of Simon the Magician. He was baptized. Passage clearly shows us by his actions he was not a believer. The Bible also teaches us that there were some who were saved and not baptized. The prostitute in Luke 7 was told that her sins were forgiven. The paralytic in Matthew 9 was told that his sins were forgiven. The tax collector in Luke 18 went home justified. The thief on the cross went to paradise. They were not baptized. I'll give you a third reason. John 4.2 tells us that Jesus didn't baptize anybody. Now that's a strange omission if baptism is necessary for salvation. Jesus didn't baptize. Let me give you a fourth reason. Look at Acts chapter 10. Here Peter is preaching in the house of Cornelius. I want you to notice verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to his message. Peter's preaching, the Holy Spirit comes upon these people. What's that tell you about these people? They're saved. When you get the Holy Spirit, you're saved. Now, look at verse 47. Peter says, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Now what's this passage show us? It shows us clearly that baptism follows salvation. It doesn't cause salvation. They already believe. They already had the Spirit of God and they were baptized. There are illustrations of that throughout the book of Acts. Let me give you one more reason. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 14. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. And he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. And then he says in verse 16, I also baptized the house of Stephanus, but I don't remember anybody else. Now that's a strange statement if baptism is necessary for salvation. Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize very many of you. What would he be saying if baptism is necessary for salvation? I'm thankful that not too many people got saved in my ministry. But why can Paul say that? Well, look at verse 17. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, don't miss what that says. God sent me to preach the gospel, not to baptize. What's that tell you? Baptism is not part of the gospel. He came to preach the gospel, not to baptize. It's a separate thing from the gospel. I am saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone and what He has done. That is the gospel. Baptism is an outward expression of that inward reality. It is not necessary for salvation. 
You say, well then how do you explain Acts chapter 2? Well, come back there. Some, in explaining this, point to the word for in the expression for the forgiveness of your sins. It's the Greek word ice, which can be translated because of. In fact, it's translated that way in Matthew 12, 41, where Jesus says the people of Nineveh repented because of the preaching of Jonah. If we translate it that way, then this phrase would read, let each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus because of the forgiveness of your sins. And that would be consistent with the rest of Scripture. However, personally, I'm not real comfortable with that because I don't know Greek well enough to be translating the Bible. And I can't find any translation that translates it that way. So personally, I prefer to take it the way it reads. Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Now let me tell you how I understand that. Let me give you an illustration. If I said to you, get your coat, get in the car, and let's go to the store. What got you to the store? Getting your coat or getting in the car? Getting in the car. Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. What brought about the forgiveness of sins? Was it baptism or was it repentance? It was repentance. In fact, throughout Scripture, forgiveness is related to repentance. And we see that throughout the book of Acts. In fact, if you just turn over one chapter to chapter 3 and verse 19, Peter is preaching again and he says, Repent therefore and return that your sins may be wiped away. What's the formula? Repent and you'll get forgiveness. You say, then why does he include baptism? Because baptism, as I said earlier, was an outward expression of the inward reality. And in the New Testament, there was no such thing as a Christian who wasn't baptized. It was the picture of what happened inside. In fact, repentance is essentially saying to God, I'll do whatever you say. And what's the first thing Jesus wants us to do? Be baptized. So to say yes to Jesus and no to baptism was unheard of. That's why it's the illustration throughout the New Testament of the reality of what happens inside. And I might just say this morning, if you're here as a believer and if you've never been baptized, you're out of the will of God. You're something God never expected because faith should respond in obedience. And that first step of obedience is to follow the Lord in baptism. And notice what happens. Along with the forgiveness that they would receive, Peter says at the end of verse 38, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now notice, he's not talking about gifts plural here. He's talking about the gift which is the Holy Spirit. When would they get the gift which is the Holy Spirit? At the moment they were forgiven. Which tells me that the gift of the Holy Spirit comes at the point of salvation. Look at verse 39. 
For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. Now what promise is Peter talking about here? Well, he's talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit. He mentioned it back in verse 33. Jesus mentioned it back in chapter 1 and verse 4. And Peter says this promise is for everyone. It's for you, the Israelites, and it's for your children. Now that had to be an exciting statement to these people because 50 days earlier, they stood before Pilate when he condemned Jesus and they said, His blood be on us and on who? On our children. And now Peter says, you've got the promise of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit and it's for you and your children. That's grace. And then he goes on to say, it's not just for you, but it's also for all those who are far off. Who's that? That's the Gentiles. And then he qualifies it at the end of verse 39. He says, it's as many as the Lord our God shall call to Himself. There we see the sovereignty of God. We often say, I found God. The truth in Scripture is, God found us. If you've got a hunger in your heart for the Lord, and you think it came from you, you better think again. Because that's God working through you. That's God drawing you. That's God calling you. That's His sovereignty. But you know, in Scripture, you never find His sovereignty apart from man's responsibility. And so look at verse 40. And with many other words, He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. We don't have all of Peter's sermon. We're told here that he said a lot more things. But we have the summary here, and it is, be saved from this perverse generation. God in His sovereignty calls you. But you have a responsibility, Peter says, to be saved. The call of God alone is not enough. You have to identify yourself with Jesus Christ. And when you do so, Peter says, you will be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, that's a pretty tough invitation. I mean, why didn't he just give a simple invitation like saying, now everybody close your eyes and I just want you to slip your hand up and slip it down. Why does He make it so tough? Why does He say, I want you to repent and publicly be baptized in the city of Jerusalem? That's a tough invitation. I bet you not too many people would respond to that kind of invitation. Look at verse 41. So then those who had received His Word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. To the 120 believers are added 3,000. And that is some kind of scene. And I would love to see what it looked like in the city of Jerusalem that day with 3,000 people being baptized. And I imagine Peter was remembering the words of the Lord Jesus when he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What a catch. A lot of people write books today on how to grow a church. The answer is right here. Proclaim the truth of God so that it pierces the hearts of men, so that they are asking the right questions out of the right motives, so that they come to repentance, forgiveness, receive the Spirit of God, and it says in verse 41, they are added to the number. Who's doing the adding? 
the Lord Jesus is. He said, I will build my church. I think I'd be remiss today if I didn't give an invitation. So I'm going to ask you to stand and sing together number 461. I don't know how God has spoken to your heart today, but as He, asks, as he has, I'm going to ask you to respond publicly this morning. To come forward making a commitment to the Lord Jesus. Maybe for the first time, maybe a rededication. Maybe you want to identify yourself with this local church. You come as we sing number 461, softly and tenderly.